Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Welcome to our monthly live stream. We'll be getting started in just a moment, so if you've got questions, go ahead and start putting those in the chat window so I and the moderators can pull them out and get to them. If we don't get to them during today's show, feel free to leave them down in the comments or come join us for our after show over on the SFIA Discord server. All that said, thanks for joining us and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly live stream for October of 2019. We'll get to questions in just a moment and go ahead and put those in the live chat so the moderators can find them and uh, get them logged up and ready for us to answer. Uh, A couple announcements before we get rolling. We do have an extra episode coming out this week on Nebula um, that you'll be able to see after the Rare Intelligence episode which is coming out, sorry, Rare Technology episode that's coming out this Thursday at the usual time. And um, we have a poll running right now for what episodes we're going to be doing for very early January. I think last I looked, it looked like the Moon Industrialization Complex idea was running at the top, but the poll will be open for the next, um, next, let's see, probably close that out next weekend, I think, actually. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started with questions. And the first one I saw in the chat while we were getting live was actually in regards to the Moon was... If we mine the moon out enough, what would happen to its orbit around the Earth? And uh, the simple answer is, in of itself, not necessarily anything. But um, when you're removing material from something, you have to blast off in order to leave it. Uh, if you would cut the moon in half right now, nothing would happen. The moon would just kind of sit there and drift back together. If you moved a ton of mass from the moon, uh, you'd have to do that in such a way that pushed a lot of you know new inertia into it. So, for instance, if I was lifting my freighters off the moon, sometimes counterclockwise, sometimes clockwise with its orbit from the Earth, it would stay in the same place even if we got less mass on it. That would have less effect on the Earth itself in terms of its gravity, uh, its gravity and pull. But uh, you can always set it up so that the moon will keep staying in the same place in the sky in the same orbital period because that doesn't really relate too much to its mass. And you give a little bits of adjustment as you're moving the mass off, so as you're paying some attention to when you're launching things, it should even out to where you want it. Okay, next question. Um, let me see what I thought. How did you spend that birthday? Says just a guy. Uh, hmm. Sarah and I went out for dinner at Crosswinds. That's a restaurant I'm fond of, just down the road from me. It's right on the lake. Uh, that was about the that was the extent of it. I'm only a big birthday person, so. Uh, Revan609 asks, how would someone go about establishing an ecosystem on a barren planet that has sufficient water and atmosphere for life? Hmm. If we're talking about an Earth-like world in terms of its basic setup, but one that doesn't have any life on it yet, um, I don't think that you'd actually be very too likely to find a proper Earth-like atmosphere or oceans in such a place without life, because those are all very connected to the biology of this planet. If you do, though, um, you know, so long as the soil is about what you'd want it to be, so long as you've got uh, all the right soil components, and you probably would not because there's no biology chewing on them, you could pretty much stop digging things in right away. Um, but uh, you could terraform such a plant very quickly just by, I mean, relatively speaking, 
by just introducing basic biota first, and then you add slightly more complex and increased forms of microorganisms, and eventually you start putting on your moss and your lichen and your grass and other things to kind of hold the dirt in place. And normally I think of that in terms of terraforming because you're adding water, I suppose you don't have to do anything to hold that dirt in place because uh, you're not dumping trillions of gallons of water on it from comets, but you'd still have to start doing that. And uh, I really don't think you'd have soil on a plant that didn't have life on it, though, if it did have water, because there's nothing holding it in place against erosion from air and water. Um, but it would be a much easier place to terraform. Um, <clears throat> Jesse Bright asks, are you planning on anything for Halloween? Um, I don't think we actually have anything queued up for Halloween yet. I'm trying to think if there's any plans. There's an episode on Halloween. That's that's the Rare Intelligence. Uh, sorry, Rare Technology episode. Rare Intelligence was the previous one. Um, nah, not that I can think of. Let's see. Despairman asks, if there are other intelligent life forms around, how likely is it that they use the same economic systems we do? Can we consider our systems capitalism, communism, feudalism, etc. universal? Probably not, except in the most broad strokes. Um, you would, you know, you, you look at any given economic system and what folks would generally refer to it as this form or that form, seems with democracies. The basic concept is almost never what people are using. That one sentence description is rarely the entirety of it. Like, for instance, we're not just a democracy in the United States or even a democratic republic, as people would point out. We're also a kritaki, which is a rule by judges, as we have that as a co-equal branch of government. Um, kritaki is a total rule by judges, of course, but there's that element. Same, you have a little bit of an element of gerontocracy in our society as people get older and wiser and we do rule by the elderly. Um, so you're never going to have that baseline system in place for anything economic or political. It's never going to probably, well, it could, but it's not too likely to match the one sentence description. I and mean, all the other things are going to be very dependent on what other systems they have in play, what other cultures and traditions. And so I don't think you'd really find matching universal systems too much. But the basic broad principles that fuel those as economic concepts or governing concepts, those are probably relatively universal. Um, Albert Jackson asks, if a virtual world was built inside a quantum computer, would the objects inside that world exhibit quantum properties, superposition, entanglement, etc.? They could if you program them in there. Um, you know, when you're doing a simulation, uh, any substrate, uh, that's the thing you build something off of, has an effect on, on the system, obviously, but whether you're printing your name on a short, the side of a house, a piece of paper, or carving into a desk, it, it, you know, that does have an impact on what it is. Um, when we're doing something as complex as a, a simulated world, I'd be dubious if you'd really see that substrate really going through that much. Whether you're working on a classic computer or a quantum computer, and, and again, quantum computing is, is given a, a very strange and mythological almost um, set of traits that really do not match up too well with what the stuff does. But uh, I shouldn't think there'd be much of a difference, and you could certainly have quantum properties inside a quantum computer-run simulation. Let's see... Um, if aliens don't carry the same morals as we do, is it okay to go all Imperium of Man and bash their heads in and drive them away from their systems? Uh, that's probably a Warhammer 40k reference. The Imperium, uh, in 40k is really xenophobic, uh, very xenophobic. They pretty much kill off all the aliens there, and the semi-justification in newer versions of it is basically that all the aliens they run across are Lovecraftian horrors or, or just motorist monsters who will look to do the same to you. Um, I don't think we could expect to see a galaxy very like that uh, beyond the fact that uh, everything in 40k is written from the uh, 
kind of the Lovecraftian or Moorcock perspective that the universe is just a nihilistic wasteland waiting to you know decay away. So it's not a cheerful place there. Um, but um, you know, in science fiction, you often have the idea, and Orson Scott called talks about it a little bit more in like uh, Speak of the Dead and Xenocide, uh, which you can kind of guess from the title what's going on there. Um, if you encounter a species, are they someone you can easily interact with? And it's not necessarily another alien species, but it could be cultures of, of your own species too. Um, can you interact with them? Can you be friends with them? Can you talk to them? Or is there no way whatsoever to actually kind of coexist with them? And, you know, we obviously can't rule out the possibility of, uh, of that could be things out there that we just could not coexist with. Um, and uh, that could mean you could just quarantine each other from each other. Or that could mean you have no choice but to go into a... a no holds barred, scorched earth or scorched earth's policy and just try to wipe each other out and whoever is done is, is left over. But that's a pretty pessimistic view of the universe and I would say that that's not something you really have to spend too much time thinking about. If you can't coexist with them, you're probably going to figure that out real quick and you can take accordingly action as necessary. But I don't think that's going to come up. Uh, I should certainly hope it does not. Um, but it's hardly something we can rule out either. Matt Campbell asks if you could. Oh, good morning, Matt, or afternoon, Matt. If you could watch any philosopher get in a pillow fight with any dinosaur, what kind of soda would you drink? I was thinking uh, we always start episodes off with these little one-liners before we go into the music and the intro titles, and about a quarter or a third of those are written. Uh, usually, the joke ones are actually written by Matt Campbell. So, <laughs> if you could watch any philosopher get in a pillow fight with any dinosaur, what kind of soda would you drink? Um. I guess it would depend on the philosopher. Um, maybe Descartes and uh, is there an imaginary type of soda? Soda, something with artificial sweetener? Uh, Diet Coke. We'll go with the Diet Coke. I don't really drink soda. A root beer float, maybe. Andre Jones asks, are you going to do an episode on reproduction? There are new technologies where, where even persons of the same sex can have a biological offspring. Um, <clears throat> that's not exactly the newest thing, though. That is relatively new. You should be able to mix people's DNA in various ways to always create a, a viable offspring. And um, I think that that would be one of those things But I don't know there's all that much to do on that episode. It's possible. Imagine the differences. But we could look at that. Um, it's just generally the idea that in the future where science is concerned, you really should be able to widen the options available. Um, that should have its ups and its downs, of course, like many things. Because uh, you also open the door to genetically engineered children, uh, which, again, is hard to shut on there because there's so much advantage to you know giving your kid a really upped game and it's kind of hard to argue that's immoral but at the same time it puts a lot of other people at a disadvantage too and so forth so yeah maybe we'll do an episode on that at some point lots of material to discuss there <clears throat> snowy raphael asks what techniques you have covered during terraforming do you think we should use for climate change um i mean you look at the venus episode we talked about solar shades there the most obvious application of that earthbound would be if you if you all try to deal with the amount of uh, light coming out of the plant to help it cool down uh if you decide that you want to cool the plant down or if you decide you want to warm it up would be the the orbital or lagrange point uh solar shades or mirrors and um you might also decide you want to tinker with where that light's actually coming in if you change the concentrations coming to one place or another that could help you to dispel hurricanes or warm up some areas that you'd like to make you know better accessible like we might decide we want to direct a little bit of the light from, you know, the Sahara Desert to uh, to Siberia and thus, you know, get a two-four on that one. It's slightly easier to terraform or regreen the uh, Sahara and the Siberian area at that point in time. 
or you might move it off a chunk of ocean or so forth. But I mean, that's probably the most obvious application. A lot of the geoengineering options um, tend to make me a little bit nervous, things like changing the atmosphere composition or ocean compositions, because it seems like you're fixing the problem by potentially introducing another one. If you're just reducing the amount of light that comes in, especially infrared, which is the thing we're retaining longer, and you could just block the infrared spectrums, which is a pretty big chunk of the spectrum that hits Earth, um, that strikes me as probably your, uh, I would say, least interfering, because obviously change things around, a path of least resistance, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Alka. Alk Igor, uh, in reference to the MMI episode, uh, that's the My Machine uh, Interface episode that came out this Thursday, one of the goals of Neuralink, as far as I know, is to augment humans to be competitive with AI. Thoughts? Um, you don't waste time competing with machines. Uh, if it's an AI in the sense that people often mean where it's an intelligent thing, um, then that's a person you're dealing with, essentially. Uh, otherwise, it's a very specialized type of machine. Uh, it's like trying to compete with soy or... Now, when I was a kid, they were very fond of this one song, and I, I can't remember what the guy's name was. Um, this is a classic folk song in the United States where they had an early mining machine that could drill holes, so they could cut holes for uh, tunnels for railroads to go through. And maybe it was John Henry. Um, and uh, a man was cutting a hole through the stone uh, to, to outdo the machine. He beat it, the fellow with dead when he was over. And it's supposed to be a very inspirational song, and I don't think you hear it as much these days because it seems kind of silly. I don't compete with a call. I, I don't augment myself to compete with a car. I'm not going to put wheels on my legs to to try to, you know, become a Segway. If it's an AI and it's not a person, then it's just a machine that's tailored to do things you want. If it is a person, before given value of person, then you compete with them like anybody else. If you want to augment yourself to be more competitive with some other person, whether they are natural or less natural, um, or I should say artificial or very artificial, uh, humans are that natural, uh, then you you do whatever action you think is appropriate, same as any other job or competition source you have. Moe Johnson, uh, thank you, asks, how would you get power from a direct fusion rocket? Wouldn't all the output of the direct thrust and you need a second house reactor for the ship? Uh, yes, though you could always direct a little bit of that thrust, uh, you know, in a symmetric fashion, um, and, and you, back where you could grab it, but realistically, you're almost never going to capture all of the heat energy being produced by a fusion torch drive, and that's part of the problem is actually keeping something like that cool. So you just put some thermocouples or a heat engine on the side of the housing, wherever it tends to, on that design, heat up the most, and that's probably going to give you more than enough power. Um, <clears throat> Kevin Scott asks, can we get a single timeline of what technologies will occur together in the future, i.e. would a K2 Dyson Swarm occur at the same time as autonomous seed ships? We can never have a cohesive timeline. These now, I don't know if folks try to put them together for the Outward Bound series because at least there, there's a bit of a storyline there, and I, I did give some dates to kind of set a time. Um, none of these futures are ever meant to be the actual one. Beyond the fact that I wouldn't know what they are, many of them I can flat out say would not be. We usually discuss the future in terms of one specific technology. Uh, so it's like saying, what would ancient Rome be like in terms of what we what we actually do when we bring these things up? What would ancient Rome be like if they invented the smartphone and a satellite grid? But everything else was the same. They just, you know, had smartphones and satellite grids. And, of course, they would never have just those things in isolation. But that tends to be how we treat things when we look at it on the show. We grab one or two discrete technologies and ask what the impact would be. Um, so as for K2 Dyson Swarm, that, of course, there, there are two ways to think of a Dyson Swarm like that. Either A, you really want the power, or B, you really want to have room for people and the energy that you need to drive them. If you're doing a people-based one, uh, then 
the point at which you have a completed Dyson swarm or close to it is at whatever point the population starts getting up there, about 10 to the 18th or 10 to the 19th, a billion, billion people, or many billions of billions of people. Uh, and the rate at which you can grow to that just depends on what people's birth rates are. Um, we quadrupled in population last century, and we were hardly going crazy about trying to have as many kids as we could. Um, so we could easily get up to that quite quickly. Uh, if you're doubling every century, which would be rather slow growth, uh, even nowadays, if you're doubling population every century, then in a thousand years, you have increased your population by a factor of a thousand. Uh, that's two to the tenth, right? And uh, if you need to get that up a billion billion, then it takes you 3,000 years. Right? If you need to do it uh, slower than that or faster than that, it's kind of a time frame. The other way of doing a Dyson Swarm, though, is that you just want the power. You add in more habitats later on, but you're just putting solar collectors and meals up because you want the power. And if you're doing that, it's because you want to colonize, probably, because that's about the only thing I can think of that you need that kind of power other than to run normal industry and uh, you know life support for people. So... Um, as to whether or not you'd ever use autonomous seed ships, I don't know that we would use autonomous seed ships. We might use them as a vanguard on a terraforming fleet or a colonial fleet that was running, you know, centuries ahead of the fleet that was coming. But I don't think it's a good idea to be sending out life-creating seed ships like that without people on board. Again, for a given relative value of what we mean by people. Uh, Despairman asks, if you could enter a simulation running a human simulation, enter a simulation running a human civilization, and just be an observer for like 10 years with the power to move around like a camera, in what year would you choose to do that? I mean, I guess that kind of amounts to if I could spy on any any chunk of humanity uh, for 10 years, what, in what year would I choose to do that? There's a few that come to mind. Um, I mean, obviously any major historical event, but, you know, for me it would be what 10 years would I look at, it would probably be a couple centuries down the road. Um, you might say, why not send it a million years ahead? But, uh, yeah, a couple centuries down the road, you can probably figure out the science by just looking at it from a distance. They might not be that much more advanced to get an idea what's ahead of you. Um, but, I mean, if we're talking about a pastime, there are so many ancient cultures and civilizations that, you know, it's so easy to fall in love with them. It's fascinating. Uh, they all had quite a few flaws as we have now, but... Uh, they have interesting bits. And I think a lot of them would be actually quite boring to watch, and you could just read up on the books instead. Um, but uh, it would be kind of nice to have been around in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, when it seemed like uh, a lot of the science and technology stuff was really getting more, you know, rolling. But then there'd be a temptation to like hang out with Ben Franklin in the uh, late 1700s. Um, and again, you can keep going further back. There's all sorts of time periods one might be interested in, you know. Okay. Um, Andre Jones asks, if we improve genetic engineering so much we can literally change our appearance on demand, how would we define humanity then? If you can improve genetic engineering, I don't think that would just magically make you a shapeshifter. That seems more like a cybernetics type of thing. Um, but, um, if it's one of the things where like, if we could just mold the human form to whatever we want in a given person, I would tend to say, you know, it does depend on what you mean by define humanity. Uh, we... I mean, you can take the dualistic approach that the mind and the body are very separate, that have specific form of dualism, um, but that's clearly not true. Uh, your mind absolutely affects your body, uh, and your body obviously affects your mind. Your inputs to the world uh, control how you think a lot. You're not going to look at the world the same way if you're five or six inches taller or shorter than you normally do, and that's relatively, but you know, inside the normal human framework. Um, if I start giving you the ability to see an infrared or I start uh, giving you wings so you can fly around, or 
any number of other things, that's going to really change your outlook. But does that mean you're not human anymore? I, again, that's so hard to say. It's why I tend to like the word post a little bit better. It's uh, human usually implies the biological homo sapien, although again, these terms are, you know, kind of mishmash at this stage. Um, I don't know where you draw the line or where a human is, but you just take the philosophy of, um, uh, you know, when in doubt, uh, there was a, a burden of proof to say someone is not human as opposed to a burden of proof to say that they are. Um, Wannabe Alpha asks, if a generation ship is launched, how do we ensure that future generations remember the mission and have the same ideological zeal as their first generation? Yeah, I know we discussed that in Million Year Arc, but I'm sure that came up in one of the more recent episodes too. Um, this kind of the problem you're going to have with anything like that is and we did spend a lot of time talking about that four million year arc when we were brainstorming that up. Um, how do you keep people on task? And as I point out there, there's really very limited methods you have that are not coercive. And you almost always kind of have to use something that's coercive. Like you make it so the ship only has enough fuel to stop at that one specific design destination. Um, and uh, there's kind of a problem with that that says to me, the best approach is to send many, many ships out to many, many places and see what sticks. You know? And if people aren't sticking out those given methods, you start changing things around. But I, I would feel irritated enough if I was born on a generation ship that was going to spend my entire life on that generation ship, not on Earth and not at the destination, that I really wouldn't want to have anything added to that that was even more controlling, like people telling me exactly how I should go about things when we get to colonizing. You don't want to be ruled over by a dead hand. Um, so a lot of it says you prepare to try to keep your continuity, but otherwise you just send out lots of lots of seeds to lots of worlds and see what works and uh, over the centuries you get better and better at doing that but since people could end up dying or, or just you know going mad or crazy if you're not doing that well you obviously don't want to put a lot of thought into advance it's just from my perspective I don't think you try to push them too much to do what you want them to do because again they're going to be on the scene with the same information you have they're probably going to make better decisions than you are uh, and regardless they are, they are decisions so <clears throat> Um, Jesse Bright uh, asks, have you heard of the quantum computer Google has created? I haven't looked into it much yet. Uh, neither have I. I where quantum computing is concerned, we, we did do an episode on it uh, a couple years back. Um, it's interesting. It's important. There's going to be a lot of applications to it uh, for cryptography, especially uh, making better cryptography. But until it starts hitting the more commercial, or at least on the industrial level usage, um, I'm not terribly, I don't really keep up on it in too much detail. The basic concepts are there, and we'll see what develops. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, Kula asks, how is the game going you were working on? Which one? Um, <laughs> get asked for a lot of creative input on a lot of the various things, but uh, um, probably Hades 9. I haven't actually heard anything from Nick in a bit. Um, <clears throat> I assume it's still going on fairly well, since I looking over the left on my Discord chat here, I see the old message board has quite a few little hits in terms of conversation, which I should probably get around to reading sometime soon. Um... Let's see. I think I always said thank you, Chris, but thank you again, Chris. Uh, Pepsi Atlas, what's what are your drink and snack of choice? Um, you know, I for drinks I mostly do coffee and water or water with some kind of a, you know electrolyte in it. Um, water keeps the throat open and dry, and you need you need to stay hydrated. A little bit of life advice: always get a full night's sleep and always stay hydrated. Keeps the head clear. Um, as for snacks, I don't really snack that much. What was I? I had something yesterday. Um, 
I had a brownie yesterday. Um, it was actually the best brownie I've ever had in my life. One of my friend's moms made it. It was just the best brownie I've ever had. Um, but uh, I'm not usually a big snacker in that regard. Um, let's see. Mr. Popo, what solution to the Fermi Paradox do you like the most? Not the one you think is most likely, the one you think is most novel, fun, interesting. Um, the one I think is most novel, fun, and interesting. Hmm. Those are all a little bit different, though. Uh, I mean, my, my known stance on that is the is the radio technology approach. Um, not that technology itself is going to be particularly unlikely to develop, you know, amongst intelligent species, although we'll be talking about this Thursday, but more the idea that there's just so many steps along the pathway to get there that you, you know, you just don't have anybody inside this galaxy or enables. The alternative one, um, I mean, that's the one that's most interesting is actually the, the, a lot of the old aliens or, of course, the cycles, things like we see with the uh, Reapers and Mass Effect or similar. Those make for good stories. I don't think they're very likely, but... Uh, those tend to make for the best ones, where there's some kind of cycle going on uh, that explains way why um, why there's no major huge ancient civilizations lying around dominating everything. I mean, we see that in so many novels. Uh, the Ring World setting that that's there for Larry Niven. Uh, Babylon Five does that same one with the shadows and the Vorlons. I guess it's so in Star Trek too. That's a, a later later bit that might not be in the canon stuff. Uh, they have a lot of books that discuss things in more details that aren't even vaguely canon. Some of them are very good reason. Um, it always irritates me, though. I think if you're going to let people publish books in your series, uh, they're canon. And if you don't want to, don't let them publish them. So, you know, you're otherwise treating like fan fiction. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Mr. Gonzanito asks, given that we have almost limitless resources in our solar system for at least a billion years, do you think we will be motivated to make an interstellar leap before then? Uh, yes. Um, of course, we don't have almost limitless uh, resources in our solar system. We have almost limitless from our perspective right now. As we start utilizing those, we'd be growing in, in both what we want and, and how many people we have wanting stuff. And I think you would want to start moving that outside or at least start harvesting resources. Second, the thing about having almost limitless resources like that, I mean, talking about having access to K2 levels of, of resources, is that it becomes a lot easier to do things like go colonize another planet. And you do not, as a rule throughout history, actually do much of your colonizing and pioneering because you're out of space. Uh, you know, you have a lot of folks who are, they, they, they don't necessarily hate the civilization they're part of, but they don't really feel too connected to it. So their motivation to leave is is, is largely because of that. Um, you know, it's a kind of a second son's thing, go find new territory. Um, but uh you get a really big solar system place that has tons of resources. You're going to have people who want to colonize, even if there's tons of empty, cheap housing available to whoever wants it here. Um, Peter Jaszlowski asks, uh, will you do an episode on blockchain and digital currency? We, we, we did a cryptocurrency episode, what, three years ago? It's cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, that might need a bit of an update at some point in time. Uh, we'll see if the cybersecurity episode from November 7th does well or not. I'm not sure what the audience is too into and, if we do, we might do some more um, more modern computing topics. Um, Waltrix asks, how many people work on videos for the channel? Is it a team or just you? On the actual videos, I'm the only one who actually works on those videos. But in terms of helping to write the, the material up or uh, helping out with uh, moderating the show or creating some of the art we use on the show or helping to brainstorm the scripts or... Uh, helping to edit the scripts and sometimes even writing big chunks of the scripts. That is a big team effort. And I'm not really sure how many people are actually active on any time. There are over a hundred that are on our production group though. 
Um, and some of them, you know, I've left to other things and some of them have, uh, you're just busy with other things. Some get in like once a month, some on every episode. So you can usually see on the credit roll. And in fact, we'll talk about some of the other aspects, uh, fairly soon too. Um, where, and I'm going to get to the break in just a couple minutes here. Um, Loam Ipsum asks, what are your thoughts on the Navy's acknowledging the recent UFO UAP footage? Um, you know, I actually think I talked about that on Jimmy Church's show, uh, Jimmy Church's show, Fade to Black, in our most recent episode we did with him. That would be on YouTube or on his website. Uh, you can find that in the Facebook forum, too. I'll link to that. And we get that in a little bit more detail. But uh, that's, I don't have too many thoughts on it in general, though, beyond what we discussed there. Uh, last question before we go to break. Um, Seth Walker asks, have you ever heard of the concept of lattice quantum chromodynamics as it applies to simulating quantum physics? If so, how do you think it impacts the tenability of the simulation hypothesis? Um, hmm. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to have to say I'm not really too familiar with how that would apply to quantum. Uh, I know a lot of people like to suggest with things like the simulation hypothesis that you couldn't possibly simulate every atom in the universe and therefore you couldn't do a universal simulation. I have no idea why they would think that applied. Um, I can simulate a planet on my computer. I just can't simulate it down to the atom. But then again, I don't actually need to simulate it down to the atom. I just need to simulate it enough or the part that I'm seeing for it to be passing. If you can put on a virtual reality helmet and see enough detail that you feel like you're living in the real world, then that's a pretty sufficient, you know, sim. And you don't really need it to be able to zoom in to the atomic level. Um, we have lots of ways of dealing with that in computer games already. If you want to be able to zoom in, they don't have to render it all at once. And one could argue that quantum makes a really good setup for not being able to exactly track things and be able to predict back later on why things went wrong and, and you know, how the simulation is not real. Real, But uh, you do not need to simulate every atom in a universe to be able to simulate that universe convincingly. All right, let's go ahead and head to break and we'll be back in just a moment. While we are taking a quick break, it's a good chance to get some questions in for our moderators to grab and forward to me. And if you want to increase the odds it will get answered, and be nice to our mods, try to keep it clear and concise, and watch the typos. However, we won't get to every question, and normally I come back in a while after the live stream to watch the replay and to answer any questions left in the comments. After today's show though, we will also be having a Discord live chat on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description. Though we do ask everyone to enable the push to talk option and respect everyone else there. Which is to say, if you have already asked a question, try to let others get theirs in before asking another, and don't talk over top of other people, especially when they are asking a question or I'm trying to apply to it. You can also stick questions and replies in the text channel attached to the audio chat. Again though, please remember to go into your settings on Discord and change them to the push to talk before joining the conversation. Also, we've rolled out some more SFIA merchandise to join our mugs, t-shirts, and tote bags. By popular demand we've added some hats, and you can find those at our website, IsaacArthur.net on the Merchandise tab next to the Donate tab. And of course, you're welcome to click on that Donate tab too to help support the show. Or click over to our Books tab to see any of the many novels we've recommended over the years. Before we get back to the show, I want to take a quick moment to thank all the volunteers who help out on that show. 
from the mods helping out and sending me questions for our chat today, and who will be helping moderate our Discord after our show, to all the other mods on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, our website IsaacArthur.net, and of course YouTube itself. In recent live streams, we've often featured folks who help out on script editing and graphic design, and of course you get to see those folks who help make the episodes in the credit roll on each episode. The show wouldn't be half as good without their help, but that's only part of the show. SFIA isn't just about me talking about some topic for half an hour each week, it's about all the discussion and questions and random brainstorming all of you do afterwards. We've built up a phenomenal community in terms of size, courtesy, and cleverness, and it's a wonder for me to behold. But none of that would be possible without all the moderators helping keep things organized and running. If you're not already part of one of those communities, I suggest popping in and giving it a try, as they're always full of stimulating conversation, and while you're there, give a quick thanks and shout out to all the mods for all of their hard work. And now, back to our show. Okay, and we're back. Uh, next question, Doug Jones asks, could solar shades be detrimental to photosynthesis? Um, yes and no. Uh, if you're just putting a few shades up to limit, the, like if you're putting them out at the Lagrange point, you put a shade up there, the amount of light that's going to block, it's, it's going to be scattered all over the place, which would just be a tiny amount. Um, but uh, you could also pick materials that were clear to visible light, but were reflective to infrared. And uh, or to those frequencies that uh, photosynthesis mostly does not use, and that would let you do a, a cooling effect without interfering with photosynthesis at all. Indeed, we might want to do something like that at some point in time. Uh, I mean, you could have a setup where you intentionally cut down on your infrared and boosted your red and uh, blue light to enhance photosynthesis without warming a planet up too. So there's that advantage if you want more biomass. Uh, John Coleman asks, what percentage chance do you give the human race of making it without going to space, or how long? I mean, if we just stayed at home here on Earth, um, relatively low, because that would imply to me that we were not really uh, doing well as a, as, as a culture at that point in time. But you don't really need to spread out that much. I know the, the philosophy of don't put all your eggs in one basket is very true, but you could just you know scatter them a few things here and there throughout your solar system that could serve as... Uh, Industrial hubs for mining and, and relatively independent places that could boot back up if the earth blew up. Um, but I, I really do not expect that we would limit ourselves too much in terms of uh, getting out there into space. But I don't think you actually need to. To me, the reason it's not that you are particularly in danger from the only on one planet, but more that if your culture has decided it's not going to try to embrace that that stepping forward and colonizing thing, there's probably something starting to go, kind of go wrong with that culture. But uh, we did that episode, Stay-at-Home Civilizations, Formerly Paradox Stay-at-Home Civilizations, four years ago? I- I'm starting to lose track of when we do episodes. Um, and that one talks more about the ins and outs of why you might stay at home and, and what that would look like and whether or not that's tenable. And I, I would say it is tenable but not preferable. Albert Jackson Jackson asks, uh, if we assume dark energy is po- uh, controlling dark energy is possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we assume controlling dark energy is possible, could we slow the expansion of the universe to prolong the stellar era of the universe? Um, no, that's, I mean, what, what happens with the expansion is that that's an intergalactic effect. A few of the galaxies closest to us will stick around and merge with our galaxy over the next 10 to 20 billion years. They shall be shoved together by then, though it's a little bit hard to be accurate about that. And by about 180 billion years now, and that's nowhere near the end of the stellar period, about 100 billion years now, 
every other place that isn't gravitationally bound to us should have by dark energy have flowed over the cosmological event horizon. Uh, at that point in time, the stellar viewer continues and just keeps kicking along for several trillion years at least. Um, and uh, we're very early in the stellar era. And it will start to slow down about that same time, but not much. But uh, what it does cut you off from, if, if you could control dark energy to slow the expansion, that would give you access to much more materials. I don't think it would really prolong your civilization much though, because unless you're bringing those materials home and limiting your population, you're really just increasing the size of your civilization rather than how long it's going to last. Um, Buzzy asks, what's the best breaking method for interstellar spacecraft? One that doesn't require any fuel. <laughs> be the best one. Um, in uh, Exodus Fleet, in the Generation Ship series, we looked at a couple of the methods you can use to slow down. Uh, magnetically slowing down, that's a very good approach. Um, hitting particles with like a big sail to slow down, that's a good approach. Um, whatever doesn't cost you fuel and can be done relatively quickly. And uh, your best bet, of course, is something that involves the hard braking or something reasonably self-replicating that can set up shop around a star and, and start um, you know hitting you with laser beams to slow you down, like the still laser concept. And we did discuss that in Nexus Flight. Michael Masiri asks, do you believe that what Sorn is doing by... Do you believe that what Sorn is doing by trying to capture antimatter is dangerous? No. They're not producing very much of it. If we can start mass producing antimatter, it would still cost... Right now it costs us like a million times more energy to produce a, a particle of antimatter than it contains inside it. Uh, if we ever find a cheap way of transmuting or producing antimatter and storing it, <clears throat> that is actually very dangerous to civilization. Uh, especially if it's something that anybody can do in their basement or more. But uh, the basic research, I just didn't say, I wouldn't think that's dangerous any more than basic chemistry is dangerous or basic physics is dangerous in the sense that you produce a lot of very dangerous things with that knowledge. Um, Victor Runyon asks, how do you see humanity maintain the political will to complete the type of extreme long-term projects featured on your channel when that is a problem today? I don't know if it is a problem today. Um, Whenever we kind of look at these things, and it's why I always emphasize that a Dyson Swarm is something you build as you go, like a railroad system or a highway system. You don't build it all at once. Um, we try to emphasize projects that, while they do require vast amounts of resources <clears throat> and manpower, do not require anything like a unified total effort. It would be neat if we could do that, but it isn't terribly necessary. As to... Um, our culture nowadays, we're a lot more, objectively speaking, anecdotes aside, people like to talk about how we, we, you know, we aren't very long looking or really looking long into the future. Um, we plan things out way more than our ancestors did, even relatively recently. Um, and uh, I think that people miss that a lot because so much of the planning is being done by this or that organization that does it relatively quietly, like your local township trustees or something like that. They have plans for how to fix their roads for the next 30 years or things like that. Um, as to whether or not we have long-term capacity for things like this, we plan more than we used to, and we were building gigantic things like pyramids and cathedrals that were often, you know, generational projects. I think, uh, I can't even remember how long the cathedral in Cologne took to build, but, you know, these things can go on for generations. If people believe in the task, they move along. And, um, you know, if you have more resources, more people, more longer lives, that kind of thing, it becomes a lot easier to do those multi-generational tasks. Um... It's obviously always a concern, though, if you're busy fighting each other in wars, very little gets done. If you're stable, it, I don't know, you have to be stable enough that you can contemplate long-term projects. But uh, that's the key thing there, is that stability. 
Uh, libertarian Leninist rants, are you, interesting combination, are you sad sometimes that you live before it really starts with space exploration? I'm better to be alive in the 24th century than the 20th century or the 19th century or the 18th century, but probably cooler to be alive in the 22nd century. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would love to see some of these things get built. And that's uh, why when people ask what technology I most want us to invent uh, that I'd most like to live to see, I always say radical life extension. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to see a lot of these things get built and get made. And thing is, if I was live in the 23rd century, I'd be talking about how we need to be moving on past these orbital rings and, and basic colonization, do something else new too. So there hopefully will always be, regardless of what time you live in, uh, things potentially on the radar that make you wish you were alive a century from now. Uh, as opposed to being really glad that you are alive now and not next century or wish you were alive the previous century in, in the golden age that, that has passed. Um, you know, you see a lot of the dying earth uh, genre of, uh, of uh, books and series where things are just getting slowly worse and decaying. Um, right now we live in a time where things are getting better all the time and I hope there won't be a time of decay at any point in the future. But, uh, you know... This grass always going to seem greener a century from now, and if it doesn't, uh, that that's the bad sign. Um, no one asks, what is your favorite sci-fi movie? Uh, Blade Runner is still my favorite, uh, the original. That's that's definitely my favorite science fiction movie, and it had a lot of good competition. Um, and because uh, it kind of combines a couple of my love favorite fun things in in, in fiction, I'm a big fan of uh, detective film and all movies from like the 40s and 50s too. Thank you, Ben Frigo Vaz. Um, <clears throat> Kabiza's Tatomo asks, could you do a video in the future of politics, like what future ideologies could exist, what kind of economic systems we could have in the future? Probably not. Um, if I did touch on a topic like that, it would be only in the most vague general details of discussing how this or that technology might, uh, alter how we have to interact. Like in Interstellar Empires, we talked about how you'd probably have to go for a much less decentralized system if you're trying to do, you know... If you got a light lag limit, you can't talk faster than the speed of light, and you're trying to run a, a, a empire of a million worlds, you have to be very decentralized, obviously, to do that. And so things like that I'm going to discuss, but that not a dedicated episode to it, because we talk about those as a byproduct of a specific technology. Um, and otherwise, we stay as far away from politics, ideology, and, and similar topics as we can. Because um, <clears throat> it's so easy to get up on a soapbox about stuff like that, and I, I really do not like when folks do that, so I try not to do it myself. Uh, David Begon asks, what is your view of the universe as relating to whether or not it is deterministic, materialistic, mechanistic, or a combination of all views? I think by default I'm a compatibilist, um, but uh, you know, quantum does does uh, make determinism um, or, or uh, a little bit trickier. As the materialistic perspective, uh, if we talk about that from the, the older philosophical concept from a few centuries back, I think that one's not really in vogue with anybody anymore. Um, it just doesn't fit too well into, uh, you get very ultra reductionist at times with that. But um, that might be, just as we were talking a moment ago, we don't cover politics on here. I try to opine too much about philosophy either. So <laughs> um, we'll leave that to the philosophers. Uh, Jirani, uh, thank you, Jirani. Um, do you have any thoughts on solar storing generators in residential power applications? Um, the idea there being that you're creating a, a storing heat engine, and we did discuss that concept a little bit more in colonizing Mercury if you want to get the details on it, but I do like thermal solar, um, in a lot of cases a lot better, um, than, than straight solar, uh, photoelectric effect like we have with solar panels. Um, 
where it's more efficient, uh, obviously it's way better, but just in general, it tends to be a lot more durable and uh, you don't have to deal quite as much with the battery issues, especially if you're using something like um, um, you know, molten salts that can stay warm or stay hot for uh, relatively long periods compared to the day because then you don't have that big you know, late night drop off in power. Um, <clears throat> Jameson1776 asks, any thoughts on the recent findings that say the universe is expanding faster than originally thought and how this could affect life of the universe? We should do a big rip episode sometime in terms of cosmology. I'm, I'm, I don't usually like to do raw cosmology episodes, but we could look at that in like Civilization at the End of Time. Um, maybe a Civilization at the End of Time big rip episode. Um, actually, that's not a bad idea. Um, if they've been, I haven't seen them adjusting the figures upward that much that I have a call, but I might not have been paying much attention. We are slowly trying to track down the speed at which the universe is accelerating its expansion, uh, or, and assuming that it is accelerating. I don't know if that's 100% pinned down yet, though that does seem to be where the consensus of evidence is. That's not just expanding, but expanding faster than it was before. Um, we don't know what drives dark energy, uh, so it's kind of hard to say if that's a temporary effect, a total effect, or how much that is. As to how, what effect it would have on life, obviously in a big rip scenario, you have a a relatively short period of time where the expansion is going so fast that it actually starts to uh, tear apart galaxies and very soon thereafter it would start to tear apart planets and then even atoms. And that could actually have an interesting effect when it hits the quark level because when you rip two quarks apart with energy you get uh, two more pairs of quarks. So you might get a universal big bang across the place again. Which conceivably is what might have happened in the first place. Although I don't know if you can actually rip quarks apart with dark energy that way. Um, but if you could, when we say the universe came from a point-like object uh, in, in Big Bang Theory, that, that's the observable universe. We don't know that the entirety of the universe might not be infinite in size and the chunk that we're in expanded from a small point, but that there's an infinite number of these small points that expanded that are outside of our, our visual range. So you could have something like a dark energy thing where it rips everything apart and, and you get basically a Big Bang reset, if you would. Um, might be the only way you could do FTL travel. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> Apex Tyrannus asks, Isaac, what do you think of SpaceX's two-stage fully reusable Starship design? They are not planning on landing the moon in 2024, separate of NASA now with it. Um, you know, where SpaceX rocket design is concerned, I'm always impressed by some of the stuff they're doing, but at the same time, um, I, I really like to see more focus on what we're going to do on the moon than uh, how we're going to get there. Um, which is not intended as a backhanded compliment to SpaceX. What they're doing is amazing stuff. But uh, I, I tend to focus a little bit less on the actual rocketry that gets us there, uh, which is important stuff, but less of interest to me than, than what we would do once we were up there. So we do need another moon episode sometime soon. Uh, in fact, I think it's on the poll. Uh, if I had already mentioned, there is a poll running right now on our community tab, and we'll let that run for, I think, another week, see which one comes up ahead. Uh, although I'll probably do more than one episode out of those. Usually the runner-up gets done too. Um, Owen Taylor asks, if we went, if we sent autonomous self-replicating machinery to the moon, how long would it take for the moon to be disassembled? Um, the thing with nanobots is there's always a limit as to how quickly you can rip things apart. Uh, I think I've run the numbers at some point in time very loosely, and usually to take a planet apart, it is it is something that requires many decades, even, even if you're like giving the best hand away possible to those things doing it, because they can't do it too quickly or they'll generate so much heat doing it that they'll melt themselves. Um, <clears throat> although I suppose you might let them self-replicate to the point that their next actions heat the planet up so much that they expand it outward. Um, <clears throat> just, you know, basically evaporate it. 
Um, but a moon would have way less gravitational binding energy than a planet. It, it, it goes up very quickly. Uh, you know, a planet with twice as much mass as as the Earth has a lot more than twice the gravitational binding energy. I can't remember if that's. I think it might be to the fifth power, but uh, it's it's a lot more. So the moon weighing like an eightieth of the Earth's mass. You'd have to <clears throat> check what the gravitational binding energy of the moon was, but. Loosely speaking, if you take the gravitational binding energy of an object, um, you know, all the energy that's there from holding it together, uh, which I think for the Earth is somewhere around 10 to the 30th joules, it's, it's in that area. Um, and you then divide that by about uh, about how much, you know, let's say a thousand watts per square meter, whatever its surface area is, that's about as fast as you could run that. So take its surface area, multiply it by a thousand in terms of square meters, and that's how many watts it emits constantly, and then divide that by the energy by that, and that would tell you how many seconds you could pretty much disassemble that planet, because that's about as fast as you could do it without overheating, to a, a order of magnitude at least. Um... Tim O'Brien asks, how likely do you think that in about 30 to 50 years, we will have a starting or maybe already developed lunar industry, and how big would the impact of that be? Pretty big. Um, when you have a source of actual, you know, not just raw material, but active production industry that's outside of Earth's gravity well, uh, I mean, technically the moon is in Earth's gravity well, but outside of all atmosphere, um, that really opens the door to... Um, to serious colonization of space because our biggest limitation right now is that so much of the material we get has to be gotten dragged up through that gravity well. And um, it is the equivalent of trying to hobble around on one foot while, you know, when you suddenly, you know, have access to that, it's more like being able to run a marathon because you're in peak capacity. So that's the kind of the differential there. Um, I do think that we will have that in the next 30 to 50 years, but it's kind of hard to say. Um, Nine Suna Nine asks, "Do you have any plans for an upward bound episode on how we could become truly spacefaring extraplanetary, especially a roadmap from here to having robust industries and settlements off planet?" Um, there's a fly buzzing around my head. That's really distracting me. <laughs> uh, I think we probably will do a roadmap episode. I'm kind of tempted to do the uh, NSS, sorry, the National Space Society's roadmap. They released an uh, upgraded version of it, updated version of it, not that long back. Uh, I wouldn't follow that exact one, but it'd be a good one to, to look at because it's very solid, very thoughtful, um, assuming I am remembering the right roadmap. I don't know that would necessarily be an upward bound episode, and that might actually require its own sub-series. That would seem more like the outward bound series, but uh, yeah, I think, I think I would like to probably look at that more. Probably That's probably not a bad idea for a series. Um, I'm not sure if it really fits in either upward bound or outward bound, though. Hmm. I will think on that, but probably very likely to do something along those lines. Matthew Acker asks, out of all of your episodes, which do you want to either redo the most or expand upon the original? There's a bunch I've wanted to redo. I, I usually use the philosophy that, I mean, if I can add a lot of new material, I'm okay with redoing an episode. And I said I otherwise would not redo an episode um, until I felt like my speech impediment was safely worn down to the point that 90% of the population had no problem understanding me when I opened my mouth. Um, I suppose I'm probably getting to that point, um, but we're not quite to the point of redoing these. A lot of times what happens though is we'll say there was something we want to expand on and we'll do episodes like that. Which one would I most want to redo that, that we haven't re that we haven't actually done? Hmm. Um, well at the moment, the time travel episode, cause I'm redoing that one in January. So that was the next one up on the thing that I felt like redoing. Uh, we're ending the year with a look at uh, interstellar civilizations and time and how that will affect it. And I thought, you know, there's an interesting thing on that is so much of interstellar civilizations have to do with FTL. 
Uh, and uh, I thought that it would be fun to look at the, the time travel aspect of that, too, because so much of FTL, Fast and Light Travel, uh, revolves around time travel, too. So we did do a time travel in Tachyon's episode way back at the beginning of year two, and I've been wanting to revisit the FTL series uh, to kind of redo some of those episodes better and, and more detail. So right now, the one I most want to redo is the time travel episode, is I'll probably be working on that script for that some more uh, later today or tomorrow. Um, let's see. Chai Tempest asks, Isaac, should the dormant volcano under Yellowstone go off? How likely and to what degree would civilization survive, if at all? Uh, I think things would be messed up for a generation, maybe two. Um, in terms of, I don't think it would kill most people off, uh, but any kind of major thing, like the Dust Bowl had a huge impact on, on the United States uh, when that occurred in the 30s. Uh, hopefully in the 30s, don't quote me on that, but... Um, any of those kind of effects, this would be much worse than a dust bowl that uh, it's going to settle out of the air within, I mean, it would mostly settle out of the air within a year or two. And I think you'd still have most of the population left over at that point in time. Uh, and then it's just quickly a question of how quickly can you rebuild and stabilize things because there'll be a lot of cultural shift and you might have had a, a great loss of life. But uh, at most, uh, you know, someone's going to survive, you know, and I mean, a relatively large number of people would survive. And even if it was really bad and within a few centuries at the very most, even if you killed 99% of the population off and turned everyone back into like techno barbarians, they'd be back on their feet in a few centuries. Be a very different civilization though. Uh, Matthew Bond asks, what technologies are you looking forward to that you think will be invented in your lifetime? I think we asked this earlier. Radical life extension technology. Um, and uh, clanking self-replicators. Clanking self-replicators is a larger kind of... Uh, simplistic version as was the typical nanotechnology we look at and probably more realistic and more near term uh i think we got time for a couple more questions but that was the end the ones actually in the, the list my mods are oh, one second i have no idea why someone just tried to call me on on facebook <laughs> sorry um Somebody, uh, just another Tom asks, uh, just another human asks, why are all of the NASA planet photos such crappy quality? <laughs> Taking photos in space. Actually, that's a, a good question to ask. When I was running the observatory, the, the one we had for the public, there was a very good observatory at Kent State uh, when I was in grad school. On Fridays, we'd do an open viewing to the public. And we'd zoom in on planets and be like, wow, it, you know, not so much a dot anymore. You can kind of see it because it's a 12-inch telescope. We get you a pretty good sight of things like Saturn or Mars. Uh, then they'd ask to you know look at a star, and we zoom in on that star, and they'd say, "Wow, nothing's changed." Um, you know, it's just this tiny little dot still, and it's because well, it's it's a very tiny dot because it's really far away. It just has to be really bright. There's a resolution issue that comes into play on these things, and trying to take a photograph of a planet uh, is a lot harder than it sounds like. When we talk about how good a t telescope Hubble is. Uh, I. I'm going to find out who keeps trying to do that. Um, sorry, I got thrown by that. Um, someone was trying to call me on Facebook that I do not know. Um, photos, planets. Hubble telescope could not even see the moon landing site right now. That's you know very powerful telescope. It could not make out the moon landing stuff, and that that's on the moon. Uh, when we talk about you know satellite surveillance photos, and those are relatively grainy too. You know they can let you see you know a car on the ground. Those are being taken from like 80 miles up in the air. They're not that high. Um, you have to go up to like 80 trillion miles to be looking at something around another star, for instance. 
when these things are doing flybys in the gravity, they are getting one or two passes tops. They're trying to photograph the entire planet, and they're usually not in a low orbit when they're passing by. And they are usually relatively old technology, and that's why those are relatively bad images. As to something, you know, in terms of taking photos through telescopes, it's not going to be that impressive um, for quite a while. Um, the author, thank you, the author asks, uh, what is the silliest episode you remember doing? My personal favorite is colonizing the sun. Oh yeah, I'll show you. <laughs> well, now you put it in my head, uh, I would actually say that that was the silliest episode. Although uh, the clock tech episodes are some degree... Not because they are silly in terms of how we address them out, but just because they're a lot of fun to do. Um, Stupid Aliens. That was one of my favorite sillier episodes. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I have to enjoy the uh, Alien Civilizations episodes the most. Uh, QBM asks, question. Thoughts about Mr. Beast planting 20 million trees and how much of a difference could it do? I don't know how much CO2 would be locked up in 20 million trees. I'm guessing probably a few tons of peach. So uh, you know, that'd be you know, potentially 100 megatons. That's all the uh, tiny amount. Um, but, uh, trees are not, well, trees themselves are only a temporary carbon storage. And of course, all carbon storage is so, uh, you know, temporary, but in general, you better try to lock that up into the ground. So if you're building up a thicker layer of soil out of that, for instance, or putting it in the desert, things like that, that's a pretty good carbon sink. Thank you. Warhawk me is the answer to everything 42. Yes. The answer to everything, life, the universe, and everything is 42. All right. Oh, last question for the day. Werewolf 435 asks, what do you think of the DOD's recent report on climate change as a national security threat, and in particular their fear of the rise of plagues? You know, that's really more of a biology question. I'm not an epidemiologist. I have a cousin who's an epidemiologist. Um, and I could direct your question to her. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I don't know why warming itself would actually... I mean, well, a lot of life forms do thrive better in a warmer environment, but... Uh, um, you know, I've not seen that report to see exactly how they are phrasing that. And that is kind of a semi-political question. So, um, I would just say in general, anytime you disrupt a system, you expect to have, uh, many changes. And as a rule, a lot of those changes are going to be a little bit chaotic. I, I suppose you could have an increase in plagues. You would have a lot of biological changes if you significantly change the plant's temperature up or down. Um, but, uh, cause you're, you're shuffling around the, the biomes. Uh, now those are always in, in motion too, but a very quick change would be a lot more disruptive. But, um, then that's something to keep in mind. We talk about doing a lot of the geoengineering things, um, like seasteading or putting up solar shades or building artificial continents that sort of thing has a big, big impact. Uh, we're going to go ahead and go ahead and wrap up. I, I think you've probably all been seeing the, um, the upcoming episodes list uh, as we've been talking today as that's on the screen but if you're listening on the uh, audio only stuff when we put that up later on this week's episode is going to be radio technology and that will get followed up uh, with by a, um, a video on Nebula that has a look at whether or not we could develop technology without fire which I think was one of the poll runner-ups not that long back and the idea kind of stuck in my head while I was prepping the video for radio technology so I put that together uh, the week after that cybersecurity that will have some long-term looks but it will be more near-term in a lot of ways and then the episode after that is spaceship design. That should be a fun one to look at. And um, we will be having those upcoming on Thursday, the first one. And uh, we also will be having a Discord after hours session. Uh, you can use the link in the episode description here to go and visit that. Please remember to turn on your push to talk option before you go join us there. I will probably be about 10, 15 minutes before I'm in there. And we'll just carry on your questions there. That's just, you know, you talk or type and throw the question out there and I'll respond to it. So... All right, with that said, we're going to go ahead and close out. Thank you everyone for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday.
So that wraps up our live stream for today, but we are not done yet. As mentioned, we'll be doing an After Hours live voice chat over on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description, where you can keep asking me questions live for an hour or so. I'll be in there shortly after the show ends, but if you miss me, feel free to leave questions in the comments on this video and I'll try to get back in this evening to answer them. I hope to hear from you there, but if not, I'll see you Thursday.